Let's bow our heads and join our hearts as we pray one more time before we uh, press our mind into God's Word. Father, with all kinds of, of different experiences and moments and circumstances and situations that we've encountered this past week, we, we come into Your presence, Father, recognizing the, the feebleness of our strength, the, the, the meager intellect by which we, we approach uh, decisions and, and, and uh, crossroads in life. And we are humbled by it, Father, but are grateful that You are the God that, that embraces us and through Your righteousness and grace and, and mercy and compassion, you, you bring us to Yourself. And You work each day of our life, Father, to make us whole. And our thinking and our, 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 our living, our reacting, the places where we, we put our affections to make us whole and to bring healing to our hearts. We pray, Father, that as You do this, that the greatness of Your power coming to bear in our life will be seen in the community around us. And that great glory and awe will be attached to Your name. And at the same time, Father, that it will draw all men to You. And as we think about this awesome and, and great book, Revelation, that we study this morning, Father, we ask in the name of Jesus that you will give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are going to, uh, one more time, look at that statement that we've been using at the beginning of all of our sermons to think about what the Bible is as we go from Genesis to Revelation. That statement is this. The Bible is not a collection of random stories, but it is one story about God, about man, about what went wrong, and what God is doing to put it back together. Now, believe it or not, we started this study back in, in January. This morning we are going to be studying the very last book of the Bible, Revelation. What do you think of when you think of Revelation? Somebody says to you, Revelation in the Bible, what do you think? Well, there are lots of things uh, that I think about when I think of the book of Revelation, but I am always reminded of a statement that G.K. Chesterton made about this book in his, his book, Orthodoxy. He writes, and I quote, Though St. John the Evangelist saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as the one of his own commentators. And when you read the commentaries on Revelation, they go all over the place. So much of what has been written and has been preached about this book has really congealed around the misguided in many respects, uh, the fantastical in other respects, that it has now come to the point, and this is the unfortunate thing, that no one really reads Revelation anymore for inspiration. When people read Revelation, when they go to Revelation to study, to read it, they are basically going for information. Information about antichrists, which, by the way, is a word that never appears one time in the book of Revelation. Or they go there uh, trying to find or to discern some kind of a doomsday calendar where it's counting down to Armageddon. Or there's tribulations, or there's a rapture. And all of these things kind of chip away from the meaning of the book until what we have at our feet is a pile of rubble. 
This will not do, my friends. This will not do as I believe with all of my heart that this book was written to create worship in our hearts. And to inspire courage and invigorate and stir up courage in our hearts as we try to live the life of faith in this kind of a world. And to stimulate hope in this kind of world as full as it is of the Genesis chapter 3 curse of thorns and thistles. Now, I'm, I'm going to tell you my goal very, this morning is very, very simple. There's no way in 30, 25 minutes, whatever we have this morning, to do this, that we can talk about every single image, every single syllable of the book of Revelation. We can't do that. My goal is much simpler than that. I want to give you a framework in which to read this book and to answer this question. How does this book work in my life as a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth? How does this book change the way that I think? How does it inspire me? How does it invigorate my courage? How does it make me a better disciple of Jesus of Nazareth because I've read it? To do that, I'm going to give you a framework, but before we get there, let me give you three keys to interpretation or three keys to understanding this book as I see it. Number one, Revelation is to be understood symbolically rather than literally. Now, most of you could have, could have said that already. Revelation is to be understood symbolically rather than literally. One of the reasons we say this and believe this is because it's a certain kind of a genre. It, the genre of this book, the kind of literature it is, is known as apocalyptic. And it's a special kind of language. It's a special kind of literature that was written about 200 years before the time of Jesus. It actually has been around for a long time, but it really flourished about 200 years before the time of Jesus, 200 years after the time of Jesus, and it's full of insider language and insider symbolism to encourage the people that are reading it, who have that insider information, to encourage the people whose lives feel like they're under siege. They feel like they are surrounded, and if something doesn't happen, they're going to go down with the ship. And it is, it is a hard book to understand. It is not an easy book to read at times. And that's why we have to do a, a lot of diligent work in understanding that insider language and a lot of that insider symbolism. Uh, to, to give you an example, uh, about 30, maybe close to 30 years ago, I was in uh, Mpangini, South Africa, doing some teaching for a church that summer. And I was specifically talking about evangelism and outreach into the community. And I'm speaking to people who speak English the way that you and I do, but a lot of the symbolism, a lot of the, 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 um, the, the colloquialisms that we might use in South Texas were not known to the South Africans. And at one point, I'm talking about a special point. And I say, you know, I don't really want to talk about that right now. I'm going to talk about it in a little bit. Why don't we just put it on the back burner? And I got these blank stares. And I said, you know what, I need to stop right now. You don't have a clue as to what I just said. And they shook their head, no, absolutely not. And I explained it. That's the kind of work and the sensitivity that is needed to understand this book. It is to under be understood symbolically rather than literally. Number two, Revelation is theological poetry. Revelation is theological, theological poetry. It's like reading in a manner of speaking, in a sense, like reading the Psalms. It's, it's like reading the prophets. It's language that is very, very visual. Many of you know the statement by Frederick Bernard who said, uh, a picture paints a thousand words. Revelation is just the opposite. 
it is a, a thousand and thousands of words that paint a picture. It paints a, theolo- a theological picture. What John is trying to do in Revelation is to wake up our souls and arouse our minds to, to wonderment and amazement when it comes to heaven, when it comes to God, when it comes to holiness, when it comes to His power. And then number three, and this is the last thing, Revelation adds nothing to what we already know. Now that may be the astonishing thing for a lot of us, but Revelation adds nothing to what we already know. To kind of cut to the chase, let me quote a guy that I think has written some very good information and some good uh, commentary on Revelation. Eugene Peterson says, I do not read the Revelation to get additional information about the life of faith in Christ. I have read it all before in Law and Prophet, in Gospel and Epistle. Everything in the Revelation can be found in the previous 65 books of the Bible. The Revelation adds nothing of substance to what we already know. The truth of the Gospel is already complete, revealed in Jesus Christ. There is nothing new to say on the subject, but there is a new way to say it. End of quote. A new way to say it. Now, as we go into Revelation, let's think about the, the framework. And the framework we're going to begin with is the context of thistles and thorns. The curse of Genesis chapter 3. As you know, and we've been talking about this a lot, even since uh, you know, January, we have used the metaphor of thorns and thistles to, to be a way of talking about the way things are not in the world. The way that they're supposed to be is not the way that they are. And the thorns and the thistle are the metaphor of the curse that, that, uh, that God pronounces on creation in Genesis chapter 3. Thorns and thistles, just a metaphor in the Bible for things not being the way they're supposed to be. Now, let's go to Revelation chapters 6 and 7. Revelation is written to people who have embraced through faith the gospel that declared... That God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, say it with me, that whoever should believe in Him should not perish but have what? Everlasting life. It is about people who believe that gospel and their lives have been changed, but the Roman world in which they have lived and will continue to live for the time being was not getting better. In a lot of respects, it was getting worse. Rome in the future would decree that the people who believe that very gospel that God loved His world and was redeeming it, redeeming people, was, was going to, to release the creation from the bondage of decay that it had known since Genesis 3, that those people that believed those words would be put in prison and worse yet, they would be put in the arenas. These early Christians, people really like you and me, these early Christians were facing some very uncomfortable questions like, who in the world is in charge of the world? I believe that there's a God. I believe that He's mighty. I believe that He's omnipotent and omnibenevolent and He's omniscient and, and, and He's everywhere at, at once and He knows. But Rome is awful close. And who in the world is in charge of the world? Does the gospel of love and the gospel of grace actually work in the history that I'm living in right now? The history that is threatening to run over me. Now we get a hint of this, this, this kind of persecution, this, this, this dark scene at the beginning of the book. Look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the what? Suffering. In the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance 
that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos. Why? Because he's in exile. They're not holding parades for John when he goes into all of these different towns. He's not being welcomed as a hero. He's not being given the keys to any city. He's being put on islands that look like big rocks out in the middle of nowhere in the middle of a sea. So we get to Revelation chapter 5, the end of the book. Seven seals are introduced. Chapter 6, the seven seals are, are, are opened and the opening of the seals represents what has always been the history of the world. Seal 1 has a white horse and a rider going out to conquer. Seal 2 has a, a, a red horse and a rider taking peace from the earth and, and giving men opportunity to slay each other in these really heinous ways. Seal number 3, a black rider and a black horse who, that, that's dealing with, with the, the issues of agriculture in the world and food. Seal number four is a pale horse and a rider. And his name is, do you remember? It's death. Seal number five. It's this, this terrible scene of all of these martyrs, these people, Christians, disciples of Jesus, who have already died for their faith and they're crying out from under the altar. And, and John sees those who have literally died for their faith. Seal number six. Terror from creation. It's creation. It's nature in upheaval. And so what you have in those, those first, first six seals are these ungodly nations and endless wars and famines and death and terror from natural disasters and even death for not denying the gospel. And the point that John is trying to make is this. Evil in the world is a fact. It's unarguable to say that the world is this fantastic place in which nobody skins their knees. That evil is a fact. And chapter 6 ends with these sobering words, who is able to stand? Now quite frankly, that is the question that these people are asking at the time that Revelation is, is being written. And they're going to be asking that for decades and decades and decades after that. After all that has come down on top of us, who is going to be able to stand? Think about just how practical that question is. It's, it's, it's entirely Entirely the right question. Who is able to stand under the weight of this persecution? Now, when you read Revelation, and, and quite frankly, uh, you can probably argue this not to the extreme, but there is really no philosophical answer that is given for evil. There's references to dragon and Satan and, and, and to, to the beast and, 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 and all of these different metaphors, but no philosophical is ever really given for evil. There is something else that comes streaming out of this book, and it's this. In Revelation, evil is not defined clearly, but defeated absolutely. I mean, these people have the hammer and the anvil and the sword, and the, everything is coming down on top of them. And what is not going to help them is a, a, a philosophical treatise on why all of these things are happening economically and politically and socially, all these kinds of things. What they need to know is that God sees and that God will take care of them. That in Revelation, evil is not defined oh so clearly, but is defeated absolutely. That is the message. And here's how it's defeated. Say with me the first five words of this book. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. Say it with me. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Say it with me again. The revelation of Jesus Christ. And let's say it one more time. The revelation of Jesus Christ. But here's where another question pops up. How is Jesus Christ 
going to be revealed to these people in light of the evil that's in the world? Is it going to be the shepherd of the hills? Green grass, still waters. A big table, banquet, cups overflowing. Will it be children in His lap? Arms around them laughing. The way that Jesus is revealed at the very beginning of this book is in in a way to fill their minds with the greatness of the glory of the resurrected Jesus is that, that description that we find in the first chapter, the reality of the resurrected Christ. To the people of faith who are beleaguered and terrorized and surrounded by sword and spear and tempted to falter before the might of Rome's emperor... They are given a vision of Christ that is like no other. Think about the text that Bob just read for us a few minutes ago. Think of that text, verses 13 through 16 in chapter 1. Christ is described as wearing the vestments of a priest. Meaning that Christ is the one that is going to be bringing His people to God. It is Jesus as a priest who is going to be removing the barriers that would keep people away from from God the Father. He's described as having a head and and having hair that is white. He is the Holy One. He has eyes like flames of fire, meaning that, that Christ's vision is penetrating. That He doesn't just see us, but He sees into us. He has feet like burnished bronze, that his base is solid. And, and, and bronze, we say, you know, the, 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 we use the metaphor of steel to talk about victory and about war. Bronze has some of those same kind of connections in the primitive world. That bronze, he is, he is somebody that will not be trampled on, but is the one that will be victorious. He has a voice like the sound of mighty rivers. He is the one that commands and He is the one that has authority. He's also in His right hand holding what? Seven stars. In His right hand, He is holding holding seven stars. You know what the right hand represented? The right hand was the hand of your power. What you did in your right hand was a show of your strength. And in His right hand, he He is holding the seven stars, which means that He controls with that right hand and with that might, everything that is in the cosmos, but for these people specifically, that includes His people, the churches. He's got a two-edged sword coming out of His mouth. His face shining like the sun in the middle of the day. And to those who are wondering who's really in control, the, the, the Caesar who is in Rome or the Caesar who is in heaven, that question has been answered. And, and, and think about the irony of this. It's being written to John. And this John has spent years wandering around Palestine with, with the Christ. He has seen Him in all kinds of circumstances. This is the John who is the beloved disciple. This is the John who sat at the right hand of Christ at the Last Supper. This is the John who saw Jesus weep at the tomb of Lazarus in John chapter 11. And yet, this John, who knows Jesus as well as anybody humanly knew Jesus, when I saw him, verse 17, when I saw him like this, like I had never seen him before, like this in all of this glory, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then Christ takes that right hand and he puts it on John's shoulder and he says, don't be afraid. It is this Christ who conquers history. It is this Christ who not only towers over the church, but sees into it. And in chapters 2 and 3, He says to His church, He who has ears, let Him what? Hear. It is this Christ 
that John sees. It is this Christ who is worshipped on the first day of the week by His church and in heaven, chapters 4 and 5, by all things. It is this Christ who is triumphant each and every day. And so we go back to the question, who is it that can stand in the midst of the evil? The faithful can. It is those that are embraced by the Christ. Which leads to the, the third and the final piece of this framework, the confidence of ultimate victory. Back in chapter 7, we come across this number for, for the first time. It won't be the last time that we see it, but in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 4, then I heard the number of those who were sealed, say it with me, 144,000. Let's say that number again, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Gives us a hint about the 144,000, right? Now we drop down to verse 9. After this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation! belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So in this, this context text of chapter 6 and chapter 7, in this context of evil, in this context of, of everything coming untethered, it's in this context of war and famine and natural disaster or whatever might befall them, these faithful, these 144,000, are not just secure, secure in their salvation, but they are exuberant. They're exuberant. White robes. Palm branches in the air. What does that sound like? Triumph. Crying out praise in a loud voice. Same kind of thing you read in Psalm chapter 5, verse 11. But let all who do what? Take, say it louder, church, refuge. Let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. I mean, how else? Do you explain Paul and Silas singing praises to God while they're in chains in a Philippian prison? Confidence of ultimate victory. And the 144,000 is not some kind of a magic number, but it is a truly significant number. It's the number of God's people. The numbering means that God knows the number of His people. Paul tells Timothy the same thing. 2 Timothy chapter 2, the Lord knows those who are His. And from the 144,000 in chapter 7, there are, in chapter 8, seven trumpets. Uh, the, the seventh trumpet brings out this seventh seal. Later on, you have this, this incredible vision of the great sign in heaven, which is a, a woman clothed with the sun and giving birth to a child. And the great red dragon who is Satan who wants to devour the child. There is the battle with the angel Michael. And then in Revelation chapter 12, the great dragon was what? was hurled down. The great dragon was hurled down. The ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Chapter 13, there's the beast from the sea. And then at the beginning of Revelation 14, you have again 144,000 standing on Mount Zion and they're singing a new song. And the significance, it's not 139 
144,000. It's 144,000. Not a single one has been lost or missing in action. Even with all of that battle that's going on in the cosmos, God still knows who are His and not a single one is lost. Can you imagine how encouraging that was to read that when you're living in some, some little burg outside of Rome or out there on the edges of the province and, and nobody knows the name of your town, let alone, let alone the names of the citizens? And you're just a face, a face that believes. A face transformed by the Gospel. Just a face. And you wonder, in all of your vulnerability, in all of your weakness, in all of your, your, your isolation, and being on an island, and defenseless, whether or not God truly sees you. And what John sees is the 144,000 there on Mount Zion. Not a single one lost. Not one missing in action. There are seven bowls of wrath. Uh, the wrath of God that's, that's poured out. All of the enemies of God are going to be judged. Babylon, that great city, that great power that sets itself against God and whose sins are piled up to the heavens, doomed. Chapter 19, though, begins to transition just a little bit. Chapter 19 is filled with the salvation songs and the book begins drawing to a close. Verses 1 and 2. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are His judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of His servants. You drop down to verse 3. Hallelujah. Verse 4. Amen. Hallelujah. Verse 6. Hallelujah. For our Lord God Almighty reigns let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Satan is bound, ultimately thrown into the lake of fire along with the beast and the false prophet, thrown into the lake of fire. Even death itself. Even death itself. Thrown into the lake of fire. And the book ends with new heavens and new earth and new Jerusalem. And the description is to stagger the people of faith. The description is, is to take a, a theological two-by-four and, and whack them in the forehead. It is to stagger the people of faith who have lived in the cities of men with all of its unrighteousness and all of its evil and all of its terrors and all of its nightmares and, and, and all of its wickedness and, and to compare that, to see that in light of the balance and the harmony and the completeness, the shalom, the beauty of it all, of the city that God built. The contrast between the new Jerusalem and the doomed Babylon could not be more complete. Revelation chapter 21, I did not see a temple in the city because of the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut. Why? For there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. 
And then over in Revelation chapter 22, no longer will there be any curse. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. No longer will there be any curse. A statement that we have used at the beginning of all of these messages is that statement that goes like this. The Bible is not a collection of random stories, but it is one story, one gigantically earth-shattering true story about God and about man and about what went wrong and what God is doing to put it back together. You know, the, the book of Genesis begins, and you'll remember this if, from your readings in Genesis, that it begins with, with God creating everything with a word. He speaks, and it was created. And in six days, the, the heavens and the earth were created, and, and mankind, and all of this. And every time God saw it, He said in Hebrew, Tov, it is Tov, it is good, it is. And that the word Tov kind of carries with it the idea that when He said it and it came into being, He pronounced a blessing or the goodness on it because it was exactly what He had thought in His mind. But then by the time you get to Genesis 3, you have this funny speaking serpent that comes in the garden and says some things to the woman and she decides not to obey God, not to trust God, but she wants to be like a God. And so she eats of the fruit that she thinks looks very, very beautiful. She believes the words of the serpent and she gives some to the man. And even though he has been told specifically by God, don't, don't eat of that tree, he eats too and their eyes are opened. And God walking finds them and they've been hiding themselves from God. And God finds out what is happening and God pronounces the curse. Curse on the serpent. On creation. Upon human beings. And from Genesis chapter 3 about verse 15 until the end of the book of Revelation, it is the story of what God is doing. The history, the theological history, the redemptive history, what the Germans would call Heilsgeschichte. You didn't need to know that. That's an SAT word. But it's the story of what God is doing to put things back together. And how does the book of Revelation end? Oh, dragons! And, 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 and the great prostitute and Babylon and, and, and all of the, the evil with the, the famines and the death and the wars and the nations and all. It's just the curse that has been amped up. It's a new way to say it. It's all cursed. But by the time that God gets done with it, all of that has been thrown into a lake of fire. And the way that the Bible begins is the way that it ends. No curse. God and man in each other's presence. 
You know why that gate doesn't need to be shut? Because there are no marauding armies. There's, there's never any evil that is going to invade the city. There's no night there. The gate never needs to be shut. There's not a whiff of evil, a scent of unrighteousness and wickedness and meanness and violence and disease and corruption. And that's how the Bible ends. God has put it back together. And that's what we have to look forward to because of what God did through Jesus, the Lamb, who takes away the sins of the world. And this morning, we want to offer just kind of an open invitation to, to anyone who has been thinking, you know, I, I really think that, that life's pretty hard. And I think that life is pretty tough. And I think that there are times when it seems like I'm just hanging on to a log that's floating in a big ocean and I don't see any land inside and my arms are starting to get a little tired. And if something doesn't change, I may just go under. What Genesis to Revelation and every book in between points to is the answer. Christ. Jesus of Nazareth. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Who restores, beginning with the human heart, our relationship with God. And God puts His Spirit inside of us to give us that help, that spiritual help we need to be transformed and turned into the kind of people that we were always created to be. Our sins are washed away. Our, our confession that, that Jesus is Lord is, is what spurs us to change our life from living it the way that we've always been living it, away from Christ in, in the city of Babylon, to clinging to Him and following Him. And where He put His foot, that's where we put our foot. And what He looked upon, that's what we look upon. Where He placed His affections, that what we, there's, that's where we place our affections. If that describes you this morning, some of our spiritual leaders, our elders, our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. This would be the best and greatest opportunity in your life to come and to talk to these men about those kinds of changes that need to be happening in your life beginning this morning. And if that describes you, we're going to invite you to come down to the front while the rest of us, as these lights come up, we're going to stand and we're going to praise the God of heaven. Let's stand. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in His grace?